You know, the old covenant is when you had one man that had a stick that turned into a snake. And he would get before the people and, the, and, the, and he said, you know, how are they going to know that God sent me? And so he would do certain miracle signs. And the people would look and say, okay, God's with you. And like Elijah, when Elijah said, well, wh who's God, Baal or God? And they, they didn't know. They kind of stood there and he said, okay. And then they had the famous offering there where the Baal priests cut themselves and nothing happened. And then Elijah gave his little 18-second prayer. Boom, fire came down. And they went, oh, Elijah, Elijah, which means the eternal is God, eternal is God. They were saying Elijah's name over, but they meant the eternal is God. So they saw that. But in the New Covenant, you see, you, you're, you don't have to have somebody stand up here and do a sign, say, you know, I'm a magician and, and do something. Christ said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You have God's Spirit. And so when you read the Bible and you put that together, you know, you have the words of God written on your heart. And when someone stands up before you and tries to tell you something that the shepherd of the Bible does not agree with, you hear those words and you say, you know, he looks like the shepherd, but I don't recognize the voice, and so you don't move. But in fact, if you read the lettering, it's, it's more like, you know, the, you really aren't here because you are upset. You're here because I've deceived you. And again, I'll ask again, how many of you in this room have I called, talked to, asked to come to Bible study? I mean, I've met new people today. You know, no one. So, but at the same time, I've heard reports of people uh, at Pasadena, even Mr. DeCock himself, calling members and, you know, you know putting the pressure on them to, uh, to not leave. That if you leave, that somehow you're leaving, uh, which is un uh, hard to believe because you can be a Baptist and be, you know, saved. You can be, you know, a Methodist and be okay. You can go to church any day that you want to, but we do it because of tradition on Saturday because, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. You keep a day holy yourself by praying, studying, and worshiping. Mr. DeCott said more Christians are in Sunday-keeping churches than in Sabbath-keeping churches. Therefore, on Sunday, more people are worshiping God. Therefore, Sunday would have to be more holy than the Sabbath. I mean, if you start following some of these reasonings through, and yet there's only one thing that you cannot do and be a Christian, and that is keep the Sabbath and keep the holy day. That's the only thing you cannot do. You can, you can do anything else and be considered a Christian. Now, we're being tolerated right now, but if you study history, you will find that that stops after a few years. Just like with the Bible study we gave about the uh, Smyrna and Polycarp and Polycrates and the bishop at Rome. They tolerated one another during the time of Polycrates, sorry, Polycarp, and then about 35 years later when Polycrates came up, no way, Jose. They were disfellowshipped. And then it was about another hundred years later when the beast came on the scene, Constantine had, you know, this, this, this beast, and then the woman was able to straddle the beast and get on and had enough authority and power to then punish you for actually keeping the Sabbath. And then the, the edict was issued at the Council of Laodicea that says you must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day. So it's interesting, you know, that's not being said yet. But nevertheless, you are being persecuted, and the only criteria for you not being a Christian is keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, and it's, a, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing situation. Well, it is a very special day, a Sabbath day, a high day, the last day of unleavened bread. <clears throat> we were talking last night at the dinner table about recounting Passover, 
the tenth day when they took the lamb up and watched it, and then the fourteenth when they killed it, and the night to be observed, and so forth, and the traveling that they did. And then they, they poised on this day at the Red Sea with darkness behind them. Egypt was in, in darkness because God had caused a cloud to come down. They were in darkness. The Israelites were in light. And then the sea opened up, and they crossed through, and they left Egypt uh, forever. They never saw those Egyptians again, and they came out the other side. And they were told to rehearse that every year. They were told to do it every single year. Now, it's not a substitute for Jesus Christ. It pictures Jesus Christ. But we know that Israel turned loose of that after a while. They stopped doing it. We know today people who say that they believe that they are Christians. They believe in the Passover lamb. They believe in Jesus Christ. Um, and they're fine people. As a result, their, their lives are better. Just like if you followed Buddha, you would be better than you would be an atheist because Buddha has some good teachings. It tells you not to rob your neighbor. It tells you to honor your parents and so forth. It's better than not having any teachings at all. So those who follow Jesus Christ are going to be probably pretty good neighbors. But that doesn't mean that God has called them. Now, as we look at these religions, we realize that they have turned loose, probably better stated, they never had the holy days. They never had this day. Now, we're supposed to preach meet in due season. So it sounds like we're preaching a lot on the holy days, uh, and that's true because right now we're in the middle of them. But what are some of the fruits of turning loose of the holy days? Well, one of the fruit is that they worship on Sunday, and they have the argument, and they say that Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Let's go to John chapter 20 in verse 1. <clears throat> John chapter 20. And we'll see that there was a very important event that took place during the days of unleavened bread. And if Christians today were to be keeping the holy days with their focus on Jesus Christ, because that's where your focus should be, not on ancient Israel. There are lessons to learn from ancient Israel. There's lessons to learn about going through the Red Sea. But the Red Sea isn't the ultimate thing that you go through. The ultimate and what all that pointed to was what? baptismal waters when you go into the grave and you leave the old man the dead Egyptians on the other side if you will so you have to have Christ involved in all of the holy days because they certainly uh, uh, picture that verse uh, 1 the first day of the week comes Mary it was yet dark to the sepulcher and and uh, you know they use this scripture and others like it to say that Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday morning that Christ was resurrected, and somehow that let everyone know that, uh, that there was a new Sabbath, there was a new day, there was a new age coming on, and, and it's very, very vague there. But they use that and say, now Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Now, why was this Sunday mentioned? I know we've had other accounts, but we want to go through why this Sunday is mentioned during the days of unleavened bread, why does he take the time to say on the first day of the week? Why doesn't he just say, well, you know, Mary and Mary and, and um, uh, the other girl, I can't remember her name, uh, showed up and, and early in one morning. But why does it specifically say on the first day of the week? Now, this is during the days of unleavened bread. So we have to read the whole account. Is this some sort of a vague attempt to get across to the world that the entire day of worship has been changed. Well, I think we'll see that, uh, that that is not true. So we'll find out why the first day of the week is mentioned in conjunction with the resurrection. 
Let's look now at Luke 23, verse 44. We'll be turning to this a lot of scriptures, and I, uh, I kind of like that, really. I'd rather let the Bible do, do the talking, if you will. But Luke chapter 23, we start getting into an account. We have to ask ourselves, well, when was Christ resurrected? Because this is a very foundational argument. So many of your churches will say, Jesus Christ started the church on Sunday. See, they're referring to who? To what? Pentecost. And Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Therefore, we need to worship on Sunday. Now, when was he resurrected? Well, before we can find that out, we have to find out when he died. See, we have to find out when he died. Let's, let's look here in verse 44 of Luke 23. It was about the sixth hour... And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, or torn in two. A couple of things need to be discussed here. We know this is when Christ died, because in other scriptures, Christ gave up his spirit with a loud voice, and at that instant, the veil of the temple was torn in two. So he died at the sixth hour. Now, what is the sixth hour? Okay, the time was counted. Six o'clock in the morning was, was zero, 7 o'clock in the morning was hour 1, 8 o'clock was hour 2, hour 3 was 9 o'clock in the morning. And we find that where? In Pentecost, don't we? 9 o'clock in the morning, it says, you guys are all drunk. When the Spirit came and they began to speak in other tongues, and they said, you guys are all drunk. And Peter said, no, it's only the third hour in the King James Version, the third hour of the day. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. So you see, third hour was 9 o'clock in the morning, fourth hour is 10, fifth hour is 11, Sixth hour is noon, seventh hour is one, eighth hour is two, ninth hour is three, and then you come all the way around and to six o'clock is the twelfth hour. So from the sixth hour, noon, high noon, until three o'clock, there was darkness over the whole earth. Now why? Why was there darkness over the whole earth? To partially fulfill a scripture, now we'll come back here, you might put a little spot there, but let's go to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8, and we find that part of this scripture was fulfilled. Now, this is important because at times we are told that, we've been told that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. In other words, he fulfilled all of it. Now, he didn't fulfill all of it because we talked last week, there's a lot more to come. But he did fulfill part of it. And he gives us an explanation, which we'll see just in a moment. But in Amos chapter 8, and in verse 9, it says, <clears throat> It will come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And then he goes on, and here was this feast day, you know, during the days of unleavened bread, and what happens? Verse 10, Well, I'll turn your feasts into morning." and your songs into lamentation. And I'll bring sackcloth upon all your loins and baldness upon every head, and I'll make it as your like mourning for your only son, as in the end as of a bitter day. So here was a time, after, you know, when we look back, it's not Good Friday. You know, they talk about the day that Christ was crucified as Good Friday. It was a bad day. You know, it was a bad day. Christ died. The Son of God was killed for your sins and mine. But here is a prophecy. Now, does that mean that the prophecies talking about at the end time are fulfilled about 
remember we sing a song. It talks about darkness at noonday and, and it will be one day to God. Let's look back in Isaiah 61 because here is an important principle that Jesus Christ points out as far as prophecy is concerned. And if we're going to live by every word of the Bible, we need to understand, you know, the scriptures. We need to understand prophecy. So we're just taking a little digression here. <clears throat> but we know that Christ died at 3. It was dark from noon to 3. And that was prophesied. But look at Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, or sorry, anointed me to preach good tidings, or the gospel, unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. And it goes through and talks all about the last part of verse 3. Um, and they shall build the old wastes, and they'll raise up the former desolations. Well, boy, that's the world tomorrow. Verse 5, strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien will be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you'll be named the priests of the Lord. And uh, verse 7, you'll, because of the shame that you went through, you'll have double, like a firstborn inheritance. Verse 8, uh, I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I direct their work in truth, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed will be known among the Gentiles. This is a big, long prophecy. There's a lot of stuff in there. But if we go back to um, um, where Christ spoke this, Luke 4, starting in verse 18, we find a very interesting thing happens. And this is, this is important when we start to look at prophecies. Because Christ did fulfill many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he probably fulfilled all of them, but not all of them totally. In other words, he, he had a piece in every prophecy, but not the whole prophecy has been totally fulfilled. So here Christ, <clears throat> many people feel this is around his 30th birthday, possibly even the Feast of Trumpets, but that's just conjecture. Uh, he's already met Satan, he's conquered Satan, he met him in the wilderness. And then we find uh, he returns in the power of God in verse 15. He taught in their synagogues. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. And he didn't ask for this book, but again, God worked it out. It was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, when he gets Isaiah... He opens the book and he, you know, he unrolls it till he finds the place where it is written in what we call Isaiah 61, verse 1. And he starts reading. Now, now we read that whole account, didn't we? I mean, kind of breezed through it and there's a lot of stuff there. But he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. Well, do you think Christ preached to every captive there was? No, he's talking about captives of sin and recovering sight of the blind to set at liberty those that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You remember what the rest of the verse says? And the year of vengeance or the day of vengeance. But look, he stopped. Verse 20, he closed the book and he gave it to the minister. He sat down and everybody was looking at him. Why? Because he didn't read the rest of the verse. He stops right in the middle, and, and, you know, they all knew what it was. They knew what the verse was going to say. They were waiting for the year of the Lord, day of the Lord, because they wanted the day of the Lord. Why? To get rid of the Romans. 
So he sits down there going, well, what? you know, there's not even a comma there. He just stopped right in the middle of it. And he says in verse 21, he began to say unto them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, what got fulfilled? He'd been anointed. He was preaching the gospel. He was healing the blind. He was letting people go who'd been, remember the girl who was bent over with, with uh, uh, arthritis or something and bound, and one, one had been possessed by a demon for years, and he said, this woman bound by Satan these 18 years, and he lays hands on her and she's free. But also, he was freeing captives of sin. But did he proclaim the day of the Lord? Well, no. He's not come back yet. Did he, say, did he have them start rebuilding the waste places? in setting up the millennium? Well, well, no. Did he appoint, you know, those to be ministers of righteousness and so forth? Well, no. See, there's only part of the scripture got fulfilled, the first part. So to say that Christ fulfilled that scripture is true. To say that he totally fulfilled it is not true. To say Christ will fulfill the scripture that says he will come to this earth is true. But to say he totally fulfilled it is not true because he's got to come back again. So there's a first advent and there's second. Or first, first coming, there's a second coming. So the same thing with the sun being darkened at noon and going down until 3 o'clock happened then. But there is another time that it's going to happen when Christ returns. See? So this is important to understand because at times you'll stumble across information that'll say, Christ fulfilled that scripture. Christ fulfilled that scripture. That's all done away with. That's fulfilled, done, sealed, finished, and that's just simply not true. Okay, let's go back then to, uh, <clears throat> now to Matthew chapter 12. We'll go back to our story, Matthew 12 and verse 40. <clears throat> so, it's in, uh, <clears throat> important. Um, see, everything, almost everything is dual in the prophecy. Even like when the sun went down at noon, and stayed down and was dark, and then it came back up. What's the day of the Lord? You remember the feast sermons we've had on Feast of Trumpets? It's a day of darkness, of gloominess. You know, the day, you know, the, the, day will, uh, the sun will turn to blood and all that sort of thing. You know, some poetic language talking about being dark, though. It's going to be dark. Now, what also happens on Feast of Trumpets? Some of our friends will be resurrected, right? Hopefully we will be changed. Well, isn't it interesting that when it got dark, when Christ was killed, there was an earthquake, there was rumblings, and there were saints resurrected to physical life, but they were resurrected. They walked around, they came into Jerusalem, it says. Many of the saints that slept showed up because it was a witness to Christ's resurrection. Is that the only resurrection? You know what? Some people taught that because Paul had to address that and that's why the whole 15th chapter of Corinthians is written. Because some said that the resurrection was already past. And they were overthrowing the faith of some. And he said, no. No. And then he goes through and he gives 1 Corinthians 15. It says the last trump and the twinkling of an eye and those that are alive will be changed. And he has to go through that whole system there and talk about the order of resurrection. But those men and women who are resurrected on that day of darkness... That was just a type of what's to come. They were only resurrected to physical life, and they lived out, you know, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it was, and then they died. But it's only a type of what's to come. 
at what is to come. So Christ doesn't fulfill all of these things, and that's very important because there's an entire group of doctrines, brethren, that is built on that foundation that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. And when you chop that trunk down and it comes down, all of those other peripheral branches collapse too. You don't have to go out here and snip those branches off. You just cut the old trunk of the tree down. So, uh, okay, now back where we were. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> I'll get there in a minute. I almost had a heart attack this morning. I could not find my old Bible. I put it in a drawer, and I just was, oh, I left it someplace, and anyway, I found it. Okay, when, uh, when was Christ resurrected? Okay, he died around 3 o'clock. We find in uh, 12 verse 40, it says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Christ would be three days and three nights in the grave. Not half a day, not part of a day, three days and three nights. So that's how long he's buried. But we don't know how long he's going to be dead. Well, look at uh, Mark 8, verse 31. Now there's going to be a difference here. Mark chapter 8, and in verse 31, he began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, the scribes, and killed, and after three days rise again. So Christ would be dead, and it wouldn't be until after three days. So when three days are up, it's after three days. If it's not, it can't be after three days. So how can both be if there's, say, three hours difference? Christ dies around three. They hustle around, they finally get him in the tomb just before sundown. There has to be this time period. But Christ res was resurrected precisely when he died, three days and three nights later. Now, I won't go into the Wednesday and, and Sunday and, and all of the theories there, but basically Christ died in the middle of the week, Wednesday. Now, there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Let's go back and look at that, Daniel chapter 9 of when Jesus Christ would die. It's a little clear in the New International Version, so I'm going to read, read it uh, there. Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Daniel had prayed this, and it's a very good prayer to read whenever you have an opportunity. Um, it starts in about verse and runs through verse 19. It's an outstanding prayer talking about the sins and faults of Israel. And he wondered when the temple would be rebuilt and he'd ask different questions. And, and the, um, the answer comes in verse 26. After 62 sevens, we won't get into all the years and all of that, but the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Well, again, we know from duality of prophecy, the end didn't come, but it came to Jerusalem, sort of, all wiped it all out and everything, but it's got to come again. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm the covenant with many for one seven, or for seven years. See, Christ is confirming the covenant, and we've talked about that, and we will get into sermons about what the difference is between the Old and the New Covenant. 
but he will confirm the covenant for seven years. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So halfway through, Christ preached for three and a half years. We know that. He was about 30. He was about 33 and a half when he died. That's three and a half years. We don't know when the other three and a half will take place. Perhaps that will take place upon his return. We're not sure. But in the middle of that week, he's cut off. Now, a couple of things happen. One, he's killed. He's cut off. But two, somehow, it's not said here, somehow he causes the sacrifice and the offerings, these washings and so forth, to stop. But see, when we see Christ's sacrifice, we understand, oh, well, there is no more sacrifice. You don't need to offer animals. You don't need to do these washings and so forth. But he's confirmed the covenant for the first three and a half years. And then in the last three and a half years, when, of course, Israel brought out of slavery, he will confirm the covenant with them again. Now, he's resurrected precisely when he died. He stayed inside of the grave until three days and three nights, precisely when he was buried. So he was resurrected. He stayed in there until about sundown around Saturday afternoon. And, you know, it's very true. It has to be true or else you don't really have a Savior because he said these were signs. He said, like Jonah, three days and three nights. I will be dead three days and three nights. It's not just the resurrection. Lazarus was resurrected. But the three days and three nights were the sign. But why was he hanging around Sunday morning? Well, something very special was to take place. And let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Days of unleavened bread. The feast of the first fruits. Well, the free feast of first fruits is Pentecost, but the days of unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits tie together because they, um, they you can't really have one without the other. They are definitely tied together, but there's a time period there that the harvest takes place, but Christ begins, and he cannot begin the harvest until he makes sure that we are acceptable. Leviticus chapter 23 <clears throat> introduces, uh, first of all, the feast of the Lord in verse 2, uh, speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them concerning the feast of the Lord, you'll proclaim holy convocations, these are my feasts, and then he gives you six days to stick the feast into. Uh, you know, gives you an idea of the six, the 7,000 year plan, the 6,000 years that man is in now, and the seventh 1,000 year period of the millennium. So verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 3, is where you get the feast days, because there is the Ten Commandments, and so where do the feast days come from? They are statutes that are tied to the fourth commandment. So whenever he gives the statutes of the feast, he has to give the law, the fourth commandment, because it is that's where you get it. See, that's where you get it. If you were going to give a whole bunch of sex sins, probably what you would do is say, you will not commit adultery, and then give a, a sub-list of other things that, that tie into that. Those would be statutes. So he first of all gives the fourth commandment, verse 3, six days you'll work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You'll do no work. This is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then we kind of branch off over here and cover the statutes. Verse 4, these are the feasts, holy convocations. You'll proclaim them in their seasons. Now, there's a reason that they're in their seasons. I didn't bring it up here. I'll read it in the afternoon sermon. Uh, I, one of the uh, evangelists in the church said, 
that uh, by having them in certain seasons, that makes that shows that they basically had their origin in paganism as well, because the pagans kept feasts in their seasons in those harvest festivals. So uh, you, you'll be surprised when you hear uh, that letter. I'll share it with you a little later. <clears throat> so it's important that they're in their sequence or in their seasons because of the sequence. Then verse 5, the Passover. Verse 6, the 15th day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The first day you'll have a holy convocation. And uh, verse 8, you'll offer an offering made by fire to the Lord seven days. And in the seventh day is a holy convocation, which is today. But in that time period, something else happened. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, said, Now, you don't need to do it yet, he says. Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land, which I give you, you will reap the harvest thereof. So they couldn't do this wandering in the wilderness. But when they got into the land, you're going to reap this harvest. Now, then you will bring then. Now, what then means is not when you reap the harvest afterward, but when you get into the land, I want you to bring me a wave sheaf offering before you start the harvest. Now, bring me a wave sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. Now, when does he do it? On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it. And he'll offer it that day. And then he offers also a lamb without blemish. And he actually holds this up and he waves this. And then, verse 15, you will count to you from the day, actually it means on the day, um, from the morrow after the Sabbath, on the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven complete Sabbaths. Verse 16, and then the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you'll number uh, in other words, you've numbered 50 days. You'll offer a new meat offering to the Lord. You'll bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenths. They'll be fine flour, but they will be baked with leaven. And that's us. See, the, the days of unleavened bread do tie in with the feast of the first fruits, because after the Passover, Christ was the first fruit. He had no sin, no leavening. That's why it was just pure grain that was weighed. It was weighed Sunday morning, the first Sunday morning after the first Saturday after Passover. So if Passover was on Wednesday, then Saturday, then Sunday morning, this is when they went out. And the harvest was just getting ready to begin. So they went out and they cut that and they made that presentation. They waved that. Now, they would begin to harvest at that time. And this is when the church, see, God, God is talking about working with people. And then as we get to Pentecost, or Feast of the first fruits, it's at the end of the harvest, see? And so you've got these, these loaves that have leaven in them because we have sin, but of course, you know, God has forgiven our sin, but still, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. So these, leaven, these loaves are, are held up and waved, and then that shows that we have been accepted and we are part of that first fruits. So there's this harvest that takes place. They wave the the, the sheaf to the four winds, they wave the loaves to the four winds. And then in the harvest of the Bible, it talks about that they will be harvested from the four winds. Now, there's a small feast, but then there's this huge, enormous feast that we know as the Feast of Tabernacles. And that takes place, of course, at the, uh, at the end of the time. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. Paul had to address the false doctrine that... The resurrection was already passed. He had to address this. 
and then there were also those who said there would be no resurrection. It was, it was quite a mess. False doctrine spread rather rapidly. <clears throat> Chapter 15, he does recount here in verse 4 that Christ was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So it wasn't a day and a half or whatever. I remember asking my dad this. We were picking up a load of wild horses in, uh, in Nevada. And I asked him about it, and I said, uh, I said, Dad, what, what do you think about, you know, how long was Christ supposed to be buried? And he said, well, it seems like he said three days and three nights. I said, well, what do you think about that? And, and my dad had gone to Calvary Church and so forth, and he said, well, the way I figured it, he only missed it by about a day and a half. <laughs> to him, it was no big deal, you know, but, uh, you know, a day and a half, you know, you get 50% right anyway. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> we're talking here about the resurrection. And in verse 20, it says, Now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the firstfruits of them that slept. Now by man came death, by Adam. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. Because as in Adam all die, see, all of us die, because of Adam's sin. Now, we die for our own sin as well, but even if you were perfect, if you never sinned, your body would still wear out and die because death entered in through Adam. But as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, Christ is the second Adam, so if you come to Christ, you become converted. Christ is uh, your high priest. Another analogy is he's the shepherd, he's the rock. He's the first fruit. He's the little lamb. There's a lot of analogies, but he's also the second Adam, which means he's your father. Now, that doesn't mean the Trinity, but that's one of the reasons that in the um, uh, Messiah record, uh, they're quoting, I think, Isaiah 9, 6 or something, where it says, the mighty God, the everlasting father. That doesn't mean, that's not talking about a Trinity situation. Again, that's part of his role. He is the second Adam. Adam's our father. You know, he's the new Adam. So in one way, he's our father as well. But that doesn't mean there's not God the father either, just like, you know, he's a shepherd or he's a rock or, or whatever. We're the bride. We're the mother. You know, so again, we don't want to get too carried away with the analogies, but nevertheless. But verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Now, he doesn't go into the end there about what all will happen there, but he is talking about the resurrection. He says, every man will come back to life, but in their own order. And then he says, Christ, first fruits, those that are his, at his uh, return, and then, then comes the end. The traditional Christianity has no idea what that means, because what do they say? Well, when you die, you go to heaven. Well, they say, yeah, but what about the scripture says resurrection? Uh, well, you go to heaven, and then you get a body later. I mean, they really don't know. There's hard, it's hard for them to explain because they turned loose of the holy days. 